0: Loveland, Texas. Steve Green, the men's basketball coach at South Plains College, was recovering from an up-and-down season last summer when he decided he needed to make a change. So he planted himself in front of the television in his living room and began to study, really study, his favorite team. Green scribbled down every cut, every back screen, and every curl. In pursuit of a goal that was so ambitious that it bordered on audacious, he consulted with his assistants and overhauled his playbook. His wife, Teresa, discovered that she needed to make room for a new love in her husband's life. He is obsessed, she said, with the Warriors. In his grand experiment to turn his team into the junior college version of the Golden State Warriors, yes, those Warriors, Green has coached the South Plains Texans to a 28-0 record as they enter the postseason. That opening quote is from a New York Times article that uh, is titled, Team Plagiarizes Golden State Warriors Team is Undefeated. And that article serves as a nice opening to what's going to be an all-basketball podcast this week. Part of the reason we're going to focus on basketball is the natural seasonality of it. There's not a lot of sports to talk about. Uh, Outside of politics, there's not a lot of news that is at the same scope as the NBA season. And so there's a lot of stories about it. And then the MIT Sloan Conference was also uh, an event that recently happened. And that's where we're going to draw the bulk of our notes from today. What I liked about the New York Times article was they talked about the value of plagiarism. And plagiarism can actually be incredibly helpful. Plagiarism is a great way to use things that other people have figured out. In an Exponent podcast, Ben Thompson and James Allworth say that best practices is essentially just plagiarizing. And in the episode, the two talk about the values of plagiarizing the things you don't do well. For example, Samsung uh, doesn't design phones all that well, and so they largely copied the Apple designs. Another thing that they praised for plagiarism was how Instagram stories copies uh, Snapchat stories. And the reason is is because the value of Instagram is the network. That's the thing that they do well. They have a lot of people. That's their strength. And so if they see competitors doing things that work, they should adopt those things that work so that they can really focus on and double down on their strengths. And this applies even to basketball as we see a, a South South Plains college in Texas has plagiarized the style of the Warriors because it works. So with that inspiration from basketball, Let's get into the notes. One. All of these clips are going to be from an interview between Zach Lowe and Daryl Morey at the Sloan Sports Conference. This first one, uh, Morey is talking about base rates, and he's asked about when he became the general manager, how did he figure out what kind of a, uh, what kind of a team to build? And so Morey says that he looked back and, and looked at what successful championship teams had done and then found if there were different pathways to achieve that. And this is what he says.
1: I've showed these in a talk, you know, with a lot of the stuff grayed out. But I show the actual slides I showed uh, our ownership of where we need to go from here. And one one of those slides was, hey, you know, here are how great we need. We need at least one great player. Obviously, more than that's even better. Uh, here are the ways it's happened, you know, the most reliable way is to 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 get a very high pick. It actually
0: base rates can be really helpful because you don't have to start from scratch. You should be I'm all about that base, about that base. and maury figured out that you can draft players, you can trade for players, or you can have a existing player on your roster become an all-star and those are the ways that you get great players and if you want to win a championship you have to gr- have great players to, uh, to win that championship. So looking at the base rates for basketball can be a really helpful way to figure out how teams succeed and what they do well. In his podcast with Zach Lowe this is exactly what Sam Hinkie said that he did when he applied to be the 76ers general manager. Hinky said quote One of my big things is to survey base rates at any time you can. You go back to facts whenever you can. You go back to finding what has worked. Often things have changed, but at the same time, you should be starting with some base rate. What does this look like? What did these championship teams have in common? Where was the value driven from? End quote. So Hinky worked with Mori, and he developed this idea of looking at base rates. Two. Maury also talked about what do counterfactuals mean and how you should consider the entire range of possibilities when you look at a team. Specifically, he talked about how different kinds of offenses might have worked. Maybe they just didn't work, and you shouldn't draw too many conclusions from that. This is what Maury said.
1: I told Mike when I met him multiple times before Golden State, I was like, you won 60 games two or three times? If you win 60 games... You're in. Yeah, you got a chance. No one talks. There's there's tons of teams playing not his way that win 60 games, or 50 games that don't win the title. We don't say, oh, we'll bang it into the post and walking it up doesn't work just because that one team. Yeah, Utah.
2: You just Utah to be the only example. Utah's flex offense or pick and roll attack didn't work.
0: Specifically, Lowe and Maury were talking about Mike D'Antoni's Phoenix Suns teams, which were often criticized for playing too fast and not having the defensive skills to win a championship or move, uh, move along in the postseason. And they bring up a really good point because Maury's teams got to the playoffs and they had competitive playoff series. And that's about all you can ask for a team. I remember reading Moneyball by Michael Lewis, where he talked about how Billy Bean built a team and Bean had similar criticisms leveled against him. And he was like, you know, if I get my team to the playoffs, that's about all I can hope for is that there's so much Luck and and conditions matter and matchups matter that all you really try to do is get to the end, get to the playoffs, and then hopefully you get some lucky breaks along the way and your players don't get injured and matchups shake out um, in a beneficial way to your team versus matchups that might fall against you. So just because something doesn't work doesn't mean that doing the opposite would necessarily have worked. There could have been teams that played really slow, like for example, the Memphis Grizzlies are a team that has traditionally played a slower form of basketball, one that's more defensively oriented, but their coaches weren't ever criticized because they couldn't score extra points and they didn't have a high enough uh, scoring totals to not advance in the playoffs. So we have to keep in mind that just because something doesn't work doesn't mean doing the opposite will work. In the book, The Numbers Game, Why Everything You Know About Soccer Is Wrong, two economists have a data-driven approach to looking at what people know about soccer and how people form their beliefs about soccer. And they found that this kind of counterfactual thinking is really hard. We have a hard time coming up with alternatives to the things that we saw with our eyes. And in part this is due because we are excellent visual data gatherers. We are able to see things and interpret things and make stories about things that we visualize really well. and once. A pattern like that gets set in our mind, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. It's hard to get that out, and this is what The Economist is Quote, We remember and place undue significance on things that do happen, while ignoring those that do not. As a result, people discount causes that are absent, things that didn't happen, and augment the importance of causes that are present, things that did happen. This influences how we think about soccer. Not only do we consider the goals that our teams score more important than the goals they do not concede, but we value the tackles they make more highly than those challenges that their pre-natural sense of positioning, their game intelligence, mean they do not need to make, end quote. So just because we see something, and just because we easily observe something, and just because we easily attribute something, like having a certain kind of offense or defense, doesn't necessarily mean that... That's the sole thing that moves a needle. That's not the sole cause for the effect we see. We don't want to place too much significance on one single effect for a certain outcome. Three. This next clip is when Lowe and Maury are talking about a potential Western Conference Finals matchup between Maury's Houston Rockets and the Golden State Warriors.
2: Trade from the outside... Uh, as let's increase our variance because Golden State is clearly the favorite. this is before KD got hurt. I think they probably still are, and they're a juggernaut of they they are uh, statistically maybe the best team ever in terms of point differential yeah. and stuff I think, like that I think they are. to beat them, we're going to be an underdog, but we've got to give ourselves a chance to have like four games, or we just we might give up one twenty, but we might score one thirty because our variance is going to be so crazy. Is that? Is I that- was
1: also lobbying the commissioner just now for a one-game Western Conference Final pay-per-view event. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it's in the best interest of
0: everybody. I- I chuckled when I listened to this part of the podcast because it's a really interesting analysis and way to approach thinking about how you should win the NBA Finals. And later in the podcast, Maury says that once you get to seven games, if you you play a seven-game series, the variance kind of gets squeaked out of that. The more data pieces you have, the more that skill is going to come through. And we see this when we use Michael Mobison's two-jar model. If you're unfamiliar with the two-jar model, I wrote a long blog post about it that I'll link to in the show notes. But the essence of the model is that any sort of outcome we have, we draw from two jars to get that outcome. We draw from our skill jar, and we draw from our luck jar. And staying in the realm of basketball, if you're going to shoot a free throw, that's almost a full skill jar of luck. You're going to have really consistent skill scores. So if you're a good free throw shooter, let's say you make... 9 out of every 10 shots. You will hypothetically draw a score from the skill jar that's a 9. And you'll draw a score from the luck jar that's maybe like 0.01. And you'll combine those two to get your ultimate outcome. And free throw shooting has a really low luck draw. So 0.01 might be how much luck influences your free throws. Maybe you're shooting them outside in the wind, or maybe the sun's in your face, or maybe you're in the NBA finals and people are cheering really loudly and there's pressure. And so maybe the luck variance goes up a little bit, but it's really a heavily skilled situation. And we can compare that to, say, flipping a coin. There's no skill involved in flipping a coin. You will just flip it over and over and the outcomes will be entirely luck-based, so long as it's a fair coin. What Maury and Lowe are joking about in this podcast is that they both understand that on paper the skill values of the Rockets players are not as large as the skill values of the Golden State Warriors players. So if we have enough competitions between them, enough games, then the Warriors are going to have a consistently higher score over time than the Warriors do. But there will be stretches when the Warriors outplay them, just as in any other underdog can beat any favored team in any sort of game. We see this a lot in college football, where there's always a Division II school that plays a close game or even beats a Division I school. This happened in my neck of the woods uh, a few years ago when Appalachian State beat the University of Michigan. And people people covered that news story. It seemed like it was a big story, and it was in the sports world, but if we look at it from the entire scope of the college football games that get played every single year and all the different teams that play all across the country, we should sort of expect this thing to happen. Eventually, an underdog is going to have a really good luck draw and a pretty good skill draw, and they're going to beat a team that maybe on net has a higher skill score or a above skill score, but they get a bad luck draw as well. And if we think about that, we can decide if we're the underdog, what do we want to happen? And if we're the favorite team, what do we want to happen? Well, if we're the favorite team, we want to draw things out. We want to compete over time so that on average, our skill has more of an effect on the outcome. And if we're the underdog, we want instances where luck plays a little bit larger role. And that's what Maury jokes about when he says a one-game pay-per-view. It would be really exciting, but it also gives his team a chance to just... Uh, catch the Warriors on a bad night, or have his team play a good night, or any number of factors that could happen. So it's an interesting model, it's an interesting framework to use to solve problems based on whether that we are the favored team or whether we're the underdog. Four. Towards the end of the podcast, Lowe asks about the Michael Lewis uh, piece on Maury, and this is what he asks about um, man boobs.
2: Do you, and your front office, regret nicknaming Marcus Gasol man boobs during the draft process?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's part of the article. I think I think nicknames as you know are provably a problem. <laughs> no, they are. And you talk—they're—they're—they're they're, they're rampant across the NBA.
0: There's two things that we want to unpack in this little segment about uh, nicknames. And so, if you, if you don't know the story, uh, when Mark Gasol was a uh, high school athlete. He was he was pretty pudgy and so the scouts within the Rockets nicknamed him man boobs because he had a lot of chest fat So we have this nickname that pervades him and precludes the Rockets from drafting him because they've started to tell this Story around Marcus Gasol and we should remember that stories by and large are pretty helpful But sometimes they can malfunction uh, quite a bit I saw this on Twitter just the other day when Paul Graham tweeted this Quote, the reason I can't stand watching presentations or listening to pitches is that they give sequential rather than random access. I'll put up with sequential access from a handful of great writers and filmmakers. From everyone else, I want random access, end quote. That that tweet is from March 5th, 2017, and his account is at Paul G. And so what we have here is Graham realizes that we get into this narrative thing where we start to think that, Okay, I believed A and then B followed A, so I'm more likely to believe B and C followed B and so forth down, down the line. Bill Belichick warns against this too. He says that he would rather everyone just go off on their own and work it out on their own and then come back together and have a an argument. Sam Hinkie, who we referenced earlier, also has this bias against the narrative. This is what Chris Ballard wrote in a Sports Illustrated article about Hinky after he had resigned from the 76ers. Quote, It is two weeks later, and we are in San Francisco, riding in an Uber between Hinky's second meeting of the day with the founder of a healthcare startup and his third with an old Stanford friend who now runs a hedge fund. As the city glides by, Hinky discusses one of his least favorite terms, the narrative. By doing anything in chronological order, reading a job candidate's interview's responses, watching clips of a player, he believes we end up overvaluing the context. I like this candidate's first three answers, so I'm predisposed to like the fourth end quote. So here we have Hinky. Hinky understands that we have a tendency to tell ourselves a story about people, even if we're not conscious of this. Daniel Kahneman, who has probably done more work in this field, at least initially, to get the ball rolling, and for people like Richard Thaler to pick it up, found this out when he was a professor. And he was grading papers one day, and he thought, I wonder if the early grades that I give on the Uh, beginning problems affect the grades I give on the later problems. So for the next exam, Kahneman had all of his students write their names on the last page, and he would grade all of question one, and then he would pick up the pile, and he would grade all of question two, and he would go through the exams like that. Kahneman found out later on that his grades were much more variant. He had more variance in his scores when there wasn't this narrative bias at play. And he actually found himself looking back through them, thinking about changing some of the later scores to make them higher or lower based on what these students' early scores were. So we have this narrative pressure that's on us to... Tell stories and make sense of the world where maybe there's not sense to be made. Maybe there's a different meaning, but we miss that because of the stories we're telling ourselves. I like it when people call this narrative bias out, and it's something that Charlie Ellis did in a early 2017 uh, Master's in business interview on on Bloomberg radio and then and the bloomberg podcast and And it's hosted by Barry Ritholtz, who does a wonderful job hosting this podcast. But uh, he kind of gets into some um, into some quicksand questions toward the end of this interview with Ellis. And Ellis is telling Ritholtz about his background and and he says um oh, I, I was an art major, and Ritholt says, oh, how did art, art history tell you? And as I'm listening, I'm expecting an explanation. I'm expect, expecting a narrative from Ellis for him to say, oh, art history taught me about looking for details, or art history taught me about looking to the past to see present influences. But Ellis shuts, shuts this narrative part down where he says, quote, not very much, end quote. So Ellis understands that he has this part of his history, and... He couldn't be the person he is today without this part of his history, but that part of his history doesn't have to play a role. It doesn't have to be a story in the grand arc of Charlie Ellis' life. It could just be a thing that stands on its own, and and maybe it helped and maybe it didn't, but it's not like he has to narrate a story about this thing to have it make sense with the entire scope of his life. And we should try to be a little more like Charlie Ellis and watch out for instances where we try to tell a story where no story really exists. Five. The last idea I got from this interview between Daryl Morey and Zach Lowe related to a video that is on Vimeo from A16Z, which is a venture capital firm, and it's by one of the founders of the firm, Ben Horowitz, and he talks about what is culture, and culture is... Culture is this thing that comes up a lot in the things that I read and watch and listen to and take notes about. But it's really hard to pin down. And Horowitz's presentation is really excellent. He talks about the nebulous nature of culture. He talks about how you can hear about culture and you can understand the value of culture, but it's much harder to create a culture. But he gives rules for creating culture. And culture, Horowitz says, is the collective behavior. It's what you would do... If the boss wasn't around, it's what you do when the boss isn't around. And Horowitz says there's four keys to a good culture. And I'll let you search out Horowitz's video for the full explanation because he does an excellent job and he's a very smart person uh, to learn from. But the second rule is that good cultures create shocking rules. And he gives the technology example of Mark Zuckerberg's. A uh, rule to move fast and break things. And Horowitz says that he could have just put up a poster that said, we have a company that values innovation. But he didn't. He, he said move fast and break things because that's a shocking rule. It's this idea that you can define yourself by moving fast and breaking things. That's a way that you see yourself in the world. Nobody sees themselves as somebody that has a culture of innovation. I was reminded of this because when Mike D'Antoni was coach of the Phoenix Suns the nickname for the team was seven seconds or less and that was in reference to the speed at which the team played. In the interview with Zach Lowe Mori says that he would like the coach to maybe slow down the pace of play later on in the game when they have a lead to protect. But he understands that the coach is going to do things his own way because you can't just uh, necessarily switch on playing fast and playing slow and and trying to score points versus uh, trying to play really strong defense. And I wonder if maybe it's the culture of D'Antoni's teams. Maybe he's created a situation that has shocking rules. And D'Antoni's shocking rules are that you play offense a certain way. And you play basketball a certain way as a consequence of that. And so maybe you can't grind out wins. Maybe you can't slow it down at the end of the game. Maybe this is part of your culture. And if it's part of your culture, you're going to succeed if you maximize your culture rather than if you try to change it for just certain situations. And Maury acknowledges this in the interview. He doesn't come across as someone who's trying to middle manage or meddle where he necessarily shouldn't but it it was an interesting thing for me to think about is that maybe the culture prevents them from doing a certain something. And you have to ask yourself for the family you're in or your organization or your business or your friends. Is there a culture there that precludes certain activities? And is it one that you want? Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.